Hello and welcome to 97.7 K-Wink Mass Liberation Radio. My name is Lily. And I'm Kaylee. And we are joined today by two special guests. The first one is... Callum Ingram. And Callum Ingram just um, hosted this really awesome panel that we are happy to be a, pa- a part of. Um, and then we're going to have one of the panelists on later, Samantha Kuttner. Um, we just want to thank all of the DJs and community members that make K-Wink Radio possible. And they are a 501c3 nonprofit. So if you'd like to donate, it is tax deductible. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the panel, Callum, and what, what made you want to do it and how we all got there. Yeah, so uh, UNR is trying to uh, incentivize reaching out into the community. That's something that they're kind of trying to encourage a lot of professors to find ways to, like, you know, build meaningful connections. But usually what that ends up being uh, on campus is uh, professors talking to each other about how we ought to be reaching out to our community more often rather than actually doing anything, Mm -hmm. like, that actually kind of breaks down the line between the sort of, like, ivory tower, like the university literally up on the hill behind a wall on the edge of town. Um, so, yeah, they gave they they made maybe the mistake of giving me a panel that I could organize, and I decided <laughs> to try to actually do something meaningful with it. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I mean, political science is your forte, yes? I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> and for I know you can't see on the radio, but he is, in fact, a white man. I, I am. I, <laughs> I, he's the first white man we've had on the show, so welcome. Yeah. But... You are an expert on the subject, but the panelists were all women and um, all women of color. So I'm wondering what made you, and you were just like the moderator, even though, I mean, you obviously have plenty to say on the subject. So what led you to do that? Well, I mean, you know, I wish I could say that it was like I had some sort of very uh, deliberate plan where I set out to find like, you know, a, a you know. You're on a, a quest. Yeah, exactly. A quest, a diversity <laughs> quest or something. But it's just like actually like when you like start looking for folks that are doing awesome stuff in the community, like you tend to find that. Well, I mean, you know, there's certainly other white guys that are trying their hardest out there. But like it's just like I sent a message to the, you know, the Black Lives Matter Reno Sparks Facebook group and like. You know, happened to be lucky enough to have you kind of come back at me, Lily. And then from there, it just sort of started spiraling to, you know, find Kaylee and to, like, you know, find, you know, Eloisa Gordon-Mora, who's the university's diversity inclusion officer, um, you know, find Samantha, find Carla Trounson at the uh, library system. There's a lot of folks that are already doing this work. And, like, it tends to be when you find, you know, when you start looking at who's doing the work, you end up with... Women. Yeah, we're women. always <laughs> behind it. <laughs> we're always behind it. Yeah. Um, and we're going to, you know, that that was such a great discussion. We're going to definitely have everybody from it on there because it was like, it's like when you start getting somewhere, you realize that all of those discussions could be like 10 hours long. Don't you feel that way, Kaylee? Like every episode, I feel like we could have had five episodes on Totally. I mean, we got a lot of feedback um, from our community saying they wish it was, you know, longer. Like, or is this the? Be- I hope this is just the beginning. Was one of our questions. Um, but I definitely agree. Like, women truly are the backbone of like every movement, especially women of color. We're always the most. Dis- you just find the most disenfranchised person, and chances are they're the most angry. So they're doing something about it. 
Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, like talking about like like Carla, who appeared on the panel, like she she's been doing so much work for like years in Reno, like putting together like she's been the facilitator of these conversations, like yeah. particularly through the Washoe County Public Libraries about, um, you know, looking at African-American history. Um, she's put together some amazing work on the Holocaust as well there. Like she's always been the facilitator and doesn't often actually get handed the mic to speak herself, too. And that was something that like. You know, she invited me over there to speak on reparations a while ago. It was great, but it's obvious that, like, she has this deep knowledge and this deep care and is doing this work in the community, but doesn't get past the mic. And that seems. Yeah, like a I pattern, was surprised you know? <laughs> too. To, I, um, she had some wonderful nuggets, I thought, during the conversation. We'll get her on next, hopefully. Yeah, I'm also really glad Carla was part of conversation because, especially like locally with the Douglas Sheriff at La County Library as well, with that whole debacle, um, she brought that up during the panel i thought that was super uh good point to make yeah definitely um douglas sheriff boo all the sheriffs <laughs> boo <laughs> not all sheriffs right now yes <laughs> all of you yes, every... every last one even my basketball coach <laughs> god we used to what i remember playing basketball in uh, elementary school this is neither here nor there but like yeah <laughs> okay. wait, wait, the sheriff was the ref um yeah. for the games and he would carry his sidearm while he was refereeing our like elementary school basketball games he just would kill someone if they yeah. foul shout Whoops. out shout out to henry farnham uh, i hope you're doing great yeah <laughs> I saw my old um, basketball coach sheriff at a restaurant the other day, and he acted like he didn't know me. I was like, fine. I wonder why. It's so weird. (laughs) So um, a lot of things were brought up. Um, There are a lot of questions. We didn't look at all of the questions, but we did look at some of them. Um, Kaylee, what did you think one of, like, if we could peel away one of the questions, what do you think... um, popped out at you i mean i know these are kind of like the bad questions but, <laughs> <laughs> um we got kind of asked some like what about black on black crime yes. what about like native americans they own slaves too and i think we talked to samantha a little bit before the show and she'll be our next guest later on talked about how that is kind of a red herring argument trying to deflect from what we're actually talking about and, and it's just kind of like what what about this over here you know yeah um, the 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 all lives matter of arguments co- constantly happening like we need to make sure if we're if we're talking about pistachios we're just talking about pistachios and we can just we can have another panel on walnuts soon <laughs> there's you know you can't expose the problematic behavior of every single faction of humanity every single time you talk about oppression but um we try then <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, yeah, there were some some questions that never even found their way through to me. Thankfully, there was somebody who was sort of standing as an intermediary for, I think, some of the uh, the, the more virulent stuff. But, yeah, it definitely uh, – I found that, yeah, the, the what about Native Americans holding slaves was a uh, particularly – I mean, it's an interesting history, and it's not one that's talked about. But, again, it's like, yeah, that's not – like, we're talking about numbers that are in the, like, low hundreds – or, like, high hundreds rather than the millions there. And I think that, like – you know, the kind of whataboutism kind of misses the fact that these are not, for one, Native American identity isn't built around anti-black violence in the same way that, like, maybe white identity is. But also, I don't know, it's just like, you know, maybe the numbers kind of indicate something here, you know. Right. Um, I thought one thing about um, 
how do we think cancel culture? I like that. Because I really do, I find cancel culture fascinating. Um, Because I always wonder, like, once we, you know, the revolution happens or whatever. We all work, we're all, we have a farm and money doesn't exist and we all get to do whatever we want. And everyone's happy and the police have found their other jobs. Um, What do we do with all the people that don't agree? Because it seems like sometimes people are like, well, that person... This is problematic, so they go over here. I'm like, but then where do they really go if we do achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve, like this utopian society? Where do the people that have these like disagreements where do where do we think they're going? How do we uh, change the conversation with everybody and kind of get to like a harmony there? I feel like that's a tough question, just because I feel like cancel culture is such an umbrella term. Because it could be, like, people who are canceled could be, like, sex offenders or, like, yeah. you know, abusers. But also the, some other people are canceled for, like, the tiniest thing, you know? Yeah. And, like, they're all just canceled. And, like, what does canceled really mean? And every little, like, cancel is has a different story behind it. Some of them actually turn out to be, like, fabricated sometimes and yeah. gossip. And so... Yeah, it's it's such or a mess. <laughs> people can uncancel themselves depending on like their position in power. I've noticed too that like George Takai, um, he has had sexual uh, assault allegations against him, and then he's now like coming out with these super hot takes about Biden. He's working at the hot take factory, and I'm kind of like, I don't really want to hear from him right now. You know, I'm not. He's not canceled, but I just don't really feel like I need to hear from him right now. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I think this is, I think, a problem with, like, the kind of umbrella term cancel culture, right? Because it sort of, like, flattens out what is actually a pretty pretty jagged terrain of different folks. Um, so, like, you know, certain folks, like, I don't I don't think Louis C.K. should be invited back into a polite society at, like, right. pretty much any point in the future. But, you know, because cancel culture exists as this sort of, like, red herring enemy uh, that we kind of hold out there, like, all of a sudden now he can get a Netflix, you know, triggering the libs special or something like that and then spend you know right. make make millions of dollars off sort of resentment against this thing that in his case is probably you know can he, he should be canceled yeah and that was a hard one for me because i was like has anyone ever listened to louis ck cuz he literally like is pretty explicit about exactly what kind of person he is um, or have you heard about uh jessica krug she was like a activist like scholar uh she pretended she was a white jewish woman pretending to be an afro latina she canceled herself she was like i'm a culture leech okay (laughs) i can get that's really interesting yeah she's like like, the first person to cancel herself she's like i need to go into timeout for a while guys i did a bad thing (laughs) and yeah she should probably should be canceled for pretending to be a black latina woman for so many years and profiting off of it yeah and well and sean king like um, I'm still seeing him, and there have been some very like he has collected some money that has not been explained. Um, Ooh, I don't know. This this is juicy to me. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, so Sean King, I guess, has been fundraising in the name of, and 
people are like, we're not getting this money. Oh. Um, and okay, yeah, I'm, yeah, there's somebody, gosh, I should have, I should have pulled it up, but somebody wrote an article like, what, we don't listen to Sean King <laughs> anymore. <laughs> like, he's done uh, because of this reason, but I'm still seeing him pop up. He came to UNR. Did you know that? Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> A couple years ago, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, It's going to be a big jump, but, like, as far as what we want to talk about always, which is um, directly impacted people, I feel like they have their own kind of, like, cancellation where police brutality is wrong, but then all of a sudden if they have committed a crime, it's not as wrong anymore, people think. You know, like, they're, they're like, semi-canceled because people try to go and find these things. Yeah, like you know, this. You know, I, I teach political theory and political philosophy, and like you know, would I, one of the things we start out with is like the sort of you know social contract theory. This idea that you know we all agree to play by a certain set of rules in exchange for a certain set of protections. And I think, you know, this kind of like intuition behind that is like kind of very often like weaponized in these cases. Well, yeah. you know, like this person, we can dig through their file and like never mind the fact that like the reason that they have a file is because they like meet a certain demographic that they're constantly under surveillance. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. like, yeah, I mean, you know, they, there they, were a camera in your, in your whole life all the time. Yeah, exactly. And I've got a, a friend of mine is doing a study right now on a like police surveillance technology in Baltimore and just how pervasive the, like the monitoring is there. So that, and that ultimately yeah, is just sort of used to like dig up this past example of like X, you know, jaywalked in 1994 and therefore their life is you know they're they they've kind of lost their right to protection and they've like become you know their their life doesn't matter right well and that's where we get (laughs) to answer the black on black crime thing that's where we get that because if you constantly surveil only black people or only inner city people or only poor people and crime only means one thing to a certain population and another thing to another population then all of a sudden you get these crazy numbers yeah we've talked a lot about um how mental illness uh uh, intersects with these issues and how homelessness intersects with these issues and how homelessness is often criminalized you know they put bars on benches they put spikes where they can sleep you know it's just like those people are gonna be in the system more often than white people (laughs) and my favorite new statistic that i learned about our hostile architecture in reno is that that bus station downtown oh no the 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 old one that has it's been years and nothing has happened to it um it's a huge piece of architecture too um it took ten thousand dollars to create the hellscape that is that area to make it hostile um, they put like a bunch of boulders everywhere and everything, and people still hang out there. But it, um, you know, instead instead of spending ten thousand dollars to like make that building work for people, or you know, make uh, make showers or bathrooms or anything in that space, they spent it putting boulders and spikes and whatever, you know. Yeah, a shout out to Reno uh, Burrito Project. They're doing really great work. And I recently saw a story where they met a woman who was homeless, houseless. And she actually was houseless because she uh, developed breast cancer. 
And uh, her husband had to stop being like an electrician so that they could pay and take care of her for their treatments. And she she often used like a bathroom in one of the uh, casinos downtown and like now has to sneak in to use the bathroom because of COVID. And yeah, it's just some problems. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's it's all of the things like the the hostile um, healthcare system is going to be the reason that we're going to see a lot of an increase in homelessness and um, all you know basically every facet of society is going to melt down slowly as the earth also crumbles. Yeah, it's it is it is an interesting thing trying to get like folks to be aware of the power, the work that you know our our buildings, our spaces are doing on us. Like, have a sense that like, like for one to like engage with it consciously that you know these buildings are basically weaponized against certain people, but also like or the healthcare system or our entire economy. Right. Um, but yeah, getting folks to be aware of that and then like realize there's like an alternative that there's architectural options that there's you know kind of policy options that could actually make the world better. Like, there's just not. There's, right. not, there's not much awareness of or commitment to the idea that the future could be in any ways better or different than what we're living right now. And, like, getting yeah. close to engage with that stuff it's, is super Yeah, important. it's like there's two people. Like, there's one person that's like, I don't think anybody's like, this is great. <laughs> Maybe there's okay, some there's, small, um, there's the Make, make America, America yeah. We don't talk about that. They are actually <laughs> yeah. on Cancel Island yeah. right now. You guys need to sit out. You don't get a birthday party this year. Um, but then there's also these, like, people, especially, like, neoliberal people are maybe, like, baby boomers, maybe a little bit older, even in our generation that are just like, we know it's bad, but how can it possibly be any way different? And I think us uh, folks that are like a little bit more radicalized are like, well, it can be different in all of these ways. But I am seeing recently, like the conversation starts to shift into, well, what does it look like? Like, let's imagine it. And I know earlier in the summer, there was a really great panel with Angela Davis on it calling to um, artists to help reimagine that future. And I think that it is really important for all of us who know all of the ways that it is hostile to start incorporating, especially when we're talking to these other folks, like why, um, not only why it's why it's terrible, but how it can logically change and how these ideas can, um, can develop into different community-based solutions, which that's kind of it. Like, every solution is community-based. Like, none of it has to do with any of them. We don't actually need most of them. (laughs) Sorry. They're swinging the mic back and forth. Yeah, we got this. Yeah, we're trying not to, like, wing each other with a microphone. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the really cool things about, like, at least that was the goal of the panel conversation in some ways is, like, you know, getting, you know, it, it was focused on, you know, racism and anti-racism in Reno specifically with a kind of like goal of hopefully outlining like what, like what it would actually mean to like do an anti-racism. Because right. you know, we, we tend to like, you know, you know, I mean, in, in, you know, I'm an academic. So we, we tend to end in the classroom with like, oh, we have become more aware that racism is a problem. Like that's an accomplishment. We can all just sort of like, you know, give each other a high five and walk home and like taking that next step into like, OK, how do we build power out of this? Or like, how do we build a sense that there's actually... You know, we need to do do the work. How do we how do we even be what does even the work mean? Like and that's that's right. a hard question to answer. And so, like, you know, hopefully and you know, I don't think we we fixed it um, no. in the panel conversation. Turns like, out we did not fix racism this week. We but next hour. week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But that's that's absolutely true. And like that is um definitely a step, a step in the right direction. Um 
there are a lot of people consulting people outside. Um, one of them, actually, we're going to take a short musical break, and then we're going to call Samantha because I'm, like, so anxious and excited to get her on the show. Um, but this is an example of that where um, Terry Lynn Carrington, who is one of the best drummers in the world, um, female jazz drummer, actually is a professor at Berkeley School of Music, and she even consulted someone else um, to make jazz more inclusive because we learned that um, it's actually not. Even though when we think historically about Black um, black American music, we picture Black people. And when I, I mean, for me, I picture a slew of Black women, too. Um, when we look at it, the field right now, that's not the case. Um, we have 10% of jazz degree graduates are Black people and 1% are women. So um, a lot of women in jazz have been trying to get um, get their voices heard in a multiple um, ways. And Terry Lynn Carrington actually consulted Angela Davis on um, doing a new department there. So that is super cool. And she had a new album out um, recently. So we're going to play something from her new album, which is called Trapped in the American Dream. Um, and it features... Casa overall, and um, yeah, I guess. And then we'll bring on Samantha Kuttner, which I'm excited about. Um, you're listening to 97.7 K-Wink Mass Liberation Radio. We trapped in a dream. We're trying to wake up. Sometimes it's right and wrong, but sometimes it's black and white. Sometimes they give you paper, but sometimes they give you life. Sometimes you gotta run, and sometimes you gotta fight. Cause sometimes it's right and wrong, but sometimes you could lock me and throw the key. But you can't stop me, I know I'm free. Funny thing, I've been here before. Nothing short of a miracle. Hanging bodies on weeping trees. The whole village will come. And we are back. And 97.7 K-Link Radio with Mass Liberation. I am Lily. I'm Kaylee. And we are joined again with um, Callum Ingram and our new special guest, Samantha Kuttner. Hello, Samantha. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay, awesome. Great. Um, so we were just at the top of the hour talking about um, the panel that we did and kind of all of the nitty gritty um, cancel culture a little bit. And I think that, that that would be a great thing to talk with you about for sure. Um, mm-hmm. So, Samantha, if you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, your line of work is interesting. Definitely. Um, so when I say that I'm a... Proud Boys Whisperer, like, what does that mean? Uh, No, it really doesn't mean that I'm a white supremacist or a fascist sympathizer. It doesn't mean I'm a Proud Boys girl or I support them. What it means is that I've dedicated my life to helping people leave violent extremism and white supremacy. This is an actual field of study, and it's my life's work. I've uh, been brought in as a research consultant for social media companies, the university, and other clients. And um, I, I love what I do. And because I love what I do and the impact it can have, 
I am willing to withstand the accusations of being a fascist sympathizer and uh, <laughs> grifter. Grifter is the new favorite. Oh, grifter. Wow. You don't strike me as a grifter. Well, that's what we were kind of talking about is like these people that want to cancel everybody. Like where do they think they're going to go once we get um, once we achieve the goals in society that we want? Like we where do we put them? Right. There has to be. <laughs> We have to help them. You have to help find their forever homes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? A lot of what I do is trying to model social skills uh, so Proud Boys and others can find their forever homes. I think everyone is deserving of love and affection. And I think that before you get into the the space where all you see are enemy and supporter um, and you develop this rigid sort of thinking where you stop seeing the people next to you as people – that's where it gets problematic. Uh, a lot of the people that I deal with are people who have taken the red pill, as we discussed the other day, without considering the implications of it. Um, so they feel like they're, you know, aggressively performing their patriotism and masculinity. And some of the other stuff comes later on. But by then, they're already like very in the group. They may or may not have eliminated the majority of their social networks. Um so what I try to do in my research is balance care and accountability. The care side is the outreach and the proud voice whisperer component. And the accountability is the work that I do as a research fellow with the Khalifa Eiler Institute. All of my proud voice incident data is now embedded there. And the Khalifa Eiler uh, Institute seeks to create a comprehensive picture of global far right violence. So not what's just happening in Fallon or Reno, but what's happening in Germany, what's happening in other Western countries, and what does that say to the growing levels of extremism we're seeing, primarily from the far right? Right. I have a, a question, actually. There was um, recently this week someone, a personal Nazi um, situation, which I'm just like, why do we have actual Nazis? Um, we... <laughs> Uh, we're given a photo of somebody that was flying a Nazi flag um, in Reno, mm -hmm. and it was on Facebook, and we, you know, kind of did some research, found out who it was. And this person came back with this, like, diatribe about how it was, you know, they're a veteran, and it's a relic, and it's, please don't call it a Nazi flag. <laughs> Um, and all of these <laughs> things, yes, please don't call it a Nazi flag. It's just, um, you know, it's just, it's a thing that, you know, it's a memorabilia, it's precious, which I mean, and that my argument for that is like, if it truly is, it should probably be locked away somewhere, not flying proudly in your house where people who are hiking can see it. So like, why, why do we have more Nazi flags flying in, in, America than, you know, in Germany where you can actually be prosecuted for. Germany has tighter uh, restrictions in regard to their speech laws. Um, they, uh, we have a freedom that many other countries don't have in, in regard to that. And that freedom is being exploited uh, right. by people who know how to toe the line and know how to be menacing forces uh, without being held accountable for their actions. It's like, you know, where, where does that type of logic lead? Do you say, oh, well, you know, the KKK was just like a, 
a men's knitting circle and like I did the Europa just wants peaceful ethnic cleansing. Like right. uh, th- there's all this kind of pedantry around, um, well, don't call us that we're this don't call us that we're that. And it's like, well, you are, you are wearing the uniform. So, uh, <laughs> you know, right. so are you trying to provoke? I mean, when, um, TM Garrett came to campus, uh, I think it was February, uh, he's a former neo-Nazi, and um, he talked about um, why, like, different reasons why someone would leave a swastika as a as a cry for attention, as a retaliatory measure, um, uh, as a way to like express their pain and rage. Um, but it is like a communication uh, to Jewish people that we we do not want your presence here, and we want to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, it seems, um, a, so it's it's hard to to navigate. Yeah, there's this sort of interesting thing where it does all very often this stuff, or like the the counter protests, like a Black Lives Matter, where you have the you know protest where you have like a group of you know white vigilantes showing up armed. Like they they find this sort of way of packaging this in the same way that like the neo Nazis might, where it's like, well, it's about you know the right to freedom of speech, or it's the right to it's the right to like private property. Like they kind of remove any sort of like morality from it. And so we end up with these kind of like claims that, oh, it's just, you know, I'm just defending this kind of, you know, universal natural right to speak. You know, I have this right. Are you trying to censor me? Something like that. And then all of a sudden we can't have a conversation about, you know, whether or not it's right or wrong because it's kind of placed in this sort of like little right. bubble where we can't actually do anything about it. Certainly when I like lived in I lived in Virginia for a while before this. Um and, you know, that was that vocabulary. I lived in Charlottesville. And so, you know, like mm. folks were uh, you know, certainly with the uh, Lee Robert E. Lee statue there and with Confederate flags in general, it was always kind of packaged in this, you know, it's, it's I'm just exercising my free speech rights. I'm just take, it's about taking pride. It's it's about, you know, in, in your whiteness rather than hate of somebody else. There's always this way that you can just repackage hate symbols as like about love or about some abstract. Right. And then all of a sudden you just close it off for any sort of like political conversation. Right. Yeah. It's like the mm-hmm. get out of jail free card. And I know it like it has. I'm not Jewish, but I certainly have a visceral reaction to every swastika that I see in my community and always have as a child. Um, And in same thing with like, I'm sure that Jewish people feel that way about Confederate flags when they see them also as kind of like a you're not welcome here. Just so you know. Yeah, I mean, an an attack on one of us is an attack on all. It's very rarely do you see someone um, who hates black people who also like doesn't hate Jews, right? you know, like where, where does one draw the line? And it's also not, you know, a homophobe. It's not like every single time, but all those hatreds kind of converge. Yeah. The, uh, Peter C, the student of that, uh, was a part of identity Europa. Uh, they were chanting Jews will not replace us at the Charlottesville rally, uh, protest rally, whatever. Yeah. And it, that's the speed of which it took for UNR to say something was very, very concerning to me. And then can we speak? Can anyone speak on that a little bit? Um, like, what is the fear there for an institution to not just outright say this is not OK? Is it I mean, does it go back to like we're not allowed to because. Yeah, that's speech. what Peter C. argued. With. It was a, a freedom of speech argument or like I like how Callum brought up. It's like a right to bear arms or like Kyle Rittenhouse said it was like, I'm trying to protect this property. I'm trying mm-hmm. to protect people. Um, but yeah, like I 
like uh, Colm's point where it often gets rebranded. Uh, comedian Michael Che said it really beautifully. Uh, All Lives Matter gets rebranded as like semantics. You know, it's like really like, you know, mm-hmm. like All Lives Matter. Like, right. you know, like it's Do just they? like we're just saying Black Lives Matter, period. Not like Black Lives Matter more than you. It's Black Lives Matter. And then they hit you with, no, but All Lives right. Matter. Like, <laughs> it's just so, yeah, a way to suppress Black Lives Matter. And also Blue Lives Matter, too. Yeah, the Blue Lives Matter. I wanted to kind of see if there was some way that I could weave a thread between that, like, identity of um, that male fragility and, like, policing. Because we seem to see, like, there are more white male police officers committing these um, state-sanctioned murders and acts of violence. And does that... And then the people that are defending them happen to be these Proud Boys and or these, you know, other hate groups. Where, you know, where does that thread weave? How does that connection happen? So the Proud Boys see themselves as paramilitary extensions of the police. And in places like the Pacific Northwest, in some ways, they are given that wink and nod. Um, And they... Uh, again, I talk about reframing their extremism as an assertion of their masculinity, like the need to defend the West, claim the West, the need to protect communities from the bad people, right? Um, I don't think anyone is comfortable having conversations about what all lives matter and blue lives matter mean. And this is largely due to um, what is known about Russian influence campaigns, specifically targeting black lives matter and blue lives matter groups to further. So discord, uh, one of the most terrifying things that I remember stumbling upon in my research was when uh, a reporter asked Putin if he meddled in our elections in 2016. Mm-hmm. And he said, I didn't do this to America. You did this to yourselves. I mean, true that, and, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, and <laughs> the fact that like all the conditions were right, right. And Putin kind of just killed the soil a little. Yeah. We're especially vulnerable. I feel right now. And, and I'm seeing like this switch to where, it's it's getting to the point where, like, the police are actively at these um, uprisings. They are not policing the same, um, depending on who the side is. And one side happens to be all marginalized communities, and the other side happens to be, you know, these heavily armed um, white militias. And it's, like, really starting to be very obvious. At what point does, like, free speech not apply? I hate to bring this up because it's like not a reliable source, but a TikTok user <laughs> brought up that the um, in, indigenous folks who were um, protesting at Standing Rock also got hit with uh, tear gas, rubber bullets. Yeah. But the anti-maskers, the, you know, um, didn't get any sort of thing and was like strapped with guns. Nothing happened to them. No one got hit with tear gas. So, so there is really a double standard. Like at what point can we just say the cops don't like the proletariat that are people of color and that it is an active, you know, race war at this point. Like when do we get, when, when is the go ahead for that? <laughs> like, 
I mean, and going back to the, like, you know, Angela Davis came up a couple of times earlier, too. Like, as you know, she has a book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, where she also kind of makes this connection that, like, you know, we can't just talk about, you know, the American sort of marginalized population. It's the exact same tear gas canisters that are being used on Palestinians. Right. Like, it's the exact same policing tactics that are kind of going, like, traveling back and forth kind of across the globe, this sort of, you know, colonial, like sort of like co like colonizing your own cities, colonizing your own people, these sort of techniques of state violence are it's a global it's a global economy in violence almost. And like I think she makes that point really beautifully that like, yeah. you know, it's not just yeah, it's not just Standing Rock and it's not just Portland and it's not just, you know, and it you know, that this is connected to this kind of whole like kind of global apparatus that, you know, is just just this overwhelming. There's, there's no place to look that you, you can't sort of see. And I guess this is actually connects kind of to the uh, the Putin point a little bit too. Like you know, if uh, you know if he's interfering in our elections, like where did he, where did he learn how to do that? Like how many uh, right. how many elections have we interfered with since the Cold War? I think it was sixty six. 66 countries where we were responsible for some sort of a coup like that these are right. you know this is a like this policing and sort of police brutality is a global global phenomenon um the sort of militarization of the state um anyway sorry that was a i agree a no i know? agree it's very um and it's very prevalent everywhere but I, it's the way, like the dissonance that americans have about like what we do to other people is always really fascinating to me like if you, my favorite new thing is like dropping Obama, Obama bombs <laughs> because people are like, well, this happened. And if we have Biden, then this, I'm like, I mean, can we critique Obama bombing children yet or no? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, how dare you talk about his war crimes? He was black and you are black and you will like it. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, and this is, uh, I was talking to someone about this last night um, in a lot of, well, there are black and Hispanic power boys. And I cover the reasons for that in yeah. the, um, the Georgetown University article. Um, a lot of it is a rebellion to what they feel like um, being told to do, like as a big uh, bleep you. <laughs> um uh, like, don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want um, sort of mentality. Um, and it's not like uh, Democrats have a, have a halo and, and, and don't deserve critiques um, because in a lot of ways they're more corporate Democrats. And in a lot of ways the, um, the conservatives are at least presenting as pretending to listen to the working class, which is a really interesting shift to make so it there is. is that kind of elitism that people don't like yeah i i actually have a question for you samantha sorry i know i'm kind of like overstepping as a guest you're here, totally like... not this is what we do <laughs> so like so, so like <laughs> well so like uh angela nagel's like kill all normies project like mm -hmm. her sort of like her her work on like you know the 4chan roots of the proud boys and kind of alt-right and alt-light groups um she ends up basically blaming the left for the rise of the Proud Boys, like sort of saying, and like this connects back to the cancel culture conversation. Yeah, that, like, like we need that. Yeah. And so like, you know, I guess I would wonder like, you know, how, <laughs> do, what do you make for one of this sort of idea that like, well, it's because the left are too like censorious. We're too like high and mighty, too quick to cancel people that folks are sort of fleeing, you know, you can't tell me what to do. Fleeing to the Proud Boys is a chance to like, I don't know, get out your adolescent rage or something like that. Like. Is is there is the left doing something wrong? 
and kind of your assessment. Well, the left is doing several something yes. wrong. Yes, all the like the first is engaging in the performance of solidarity in multiple ways. Like the, there was a 4chan poll that was like, shave your head for black lives matter. And people were doing it. Right. And they did it as a troll to prove that the performance is ridiculous. Right. Right. And say what you will about the, the 4chan people, because there's a lot to say about them, but are they in that instance, wrong for calling attention to the performance of solidarity and the thoughts and prayers without actually doing anything? No. no. It's like <laughs> similar to the black screen. And it's a weird way to think, right? Because I've interviewed Proud Boys and I've interviewed anti-fascists. I have been accused of so many things in the course of my ethnographic research. Um, and I have been called so many horrific things. I've been put on uh, kill lists for my research. So even if the anti-fascists who are incredibly vocal on Twitter have issues with empathizing with people who fell in with a bad crowd. The far right sees me enough as a threat to put me on a kill list. You know? Yeah. Well, and we were talking about, you know, seriously talking about body cam. Somebody mailed me a dash cam. People have Mm -hmm. dropped off like regular house surveillance to me personally and it was like I didn't realize that that yeah. was super adequate you Mass know like liberation I... has a fund for impacted families to get them body cams and even organizers because you know because it is it getting is... hot out there isn't it yeah <laughs> um I I too like um the thing about the the left doing that kind of thing is that it seems like um, I have a good a good friend of mine. Their critique was like the like anarchists want to be the new cops, like in some Ooh, weird way, yeah. you know. <laughs> like, and I've kind of seen a lot of that in organizing, where it does get like beefs from your college club or whatever get kind of brought out into the real world, and then it's like, oh well, this person did this and this, 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 and I'm like, cool. So like. We are organizing for people whose families died right now. I really don't care about, like, Mm -hmm. what offensive thing happened four years ago or whatever it is, you know. (laughs) Um, And that kind of is the thing within the organizing community is that, like, that cancellation and that policing of the left um, is Mm -hmm. kind of damaging. Yeah. I mean, there's two terms that I want to throw out. The first is purity spiraling where um, mechanisms that were designed to protect the community from predators are being uh, weaponized as kind of a gatekeeping mechanism. So it's predominantly, um, it can include other people who sympathize, but it it is a a predominantly white male activist behavior to, um, to dominate the space that you inhabit and restrict access to other voices when they offer critiques. Um, my research peer has been attacked for expressing their opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, they're called violent. They're called aggressive. Uh, there's a lot of civility discourse that's used for, um, for silencing uh, activists. Uh, like, this is not the time. This is not the place. Yeah. Um, don't do that right but you have to consider the like what the objective is with a protest and where where other people can acknowledge their grievances but like when the right 
time for it is. Like a lot of the problems with the, the Occupy movements um, a decade ago, a little bit earlier, um, involved, you know, you ask an Occupy organizer what they were there for, and everyone would tell you a different thing. Right. So and it got to the extent, yeah, oh, sorry. Oh, no, yeah, that was, I mean, that was continue. I'm just saying, like, the the discrepancy over definitions we were talking about is a huge mm-hmm. problem. Everyone being on the same page. Right. And these are traumatized communities, right? I mean, you have to empathize from the perspective of people who are seeing encroaching fascism and may not be the descendants of um, people who escaped uh, the Holocaust or um, are the products of uh, the the transatlantic slave trade or the Native American genocide and people seeing this resurgence and feeling a sense of uh, powerlessness, like they need to do something, don't necessarily know what to do. They want to defend their communities. Um, and uh, there, there can be a lot of infighting because there's a lot of unprocessed trauma. Um, part of the reason that I created the uh, group Glitter Pill is to help build community resilience um, and just give people some tools they need to to really get right with themselves and kind of acknowledge where they might need to take a step back to regain some perspective, um, to acknowledge if they've harmed somebody in, in the space, either without intending to or intentionally. Um, and, you know, self-care is not really talked a lot about in the spaces because it seems like, like, you know, when this rally is done, maybe I'll focus on it. When this is done, maybe I'll focus on it. And every rally that happens, you get progressively more, um, you know, traumatized, burnt out. Um, So I really try to model what taking breaks and and aggressively prioritizing self-care and embracing the joy of collaboration looks like in that space. And I'm, I've built the type of community that it makes me excited to like, what's everybody up to? How's everybody doing? Did we get our readings for the day? Like it makes me really excited to show people that liberatory work can be joyful. That's one of my missions in life. Right. Well, in self-care, um, I don't know where I think I said like on an Instagram story or something was like it's been recently re 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 um, invigorated by like white women. But it is, in fact, a civil rights era black power um, thing like it came from the black liberation movement, the idea of self-care. And Audre Lorde has a really good um, has a lot of really good things to say about it. She experienced um the needing to do this when um she was recovering from an illness and just talking about how self-care in itself is a revolutionary act which is why you'll see a lot of people do like you know black boy joy or things like that like it is really important um to go to the beach and to have ice cream and to laugh and to, you know you don't have to constantly be in the trenches and i try to really do like I plan very stark, um, starkly different things for the day after an action. You know, I'm like, okay, we're going to do this thing. But then the next day, we're going to go see wild horses. <laughs> and then... Sometimes <laughs> the same days after or, the yeah, die and we went we're to the... Right uh, to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, immediately after we will engage in this other thing. 
because it's very important to pull yourself up out of that. Like, it's very important to lay in bed all day if you feel like that's what you need to do. Because then the next day you can get up and attack it. Yeah, I really like how the nap ministry, it's like a Twitter, uh, Instagram page uh, puts it. It's like uh, taking time for resting is very important. Self-care. Yeah, so sometimes the most revolutionary thing you can do is just survive. Right. Yeah. And people, you know, apologizing. I've I've had a lot of friends like, oh, I'm so sorry. I haven't been more involved. I'm like dealing with, you know, I lost my job and I'm about to be homeless. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, please don't feel like, you know, the conditions of society just struggling through those, you know, like people are looking at you like you have to be on the street at all times um, when you're struggling with these other things that some of us can, you know, go out there while others rest and we just need to be there to pick pick each other back up yeah one of the the books uh this month for the based in book pill series is on trauma stewardship like one of the the symptoms of of trauma and burnout is is withdrawing and pulling away from your social networks and activities that you enjoy um so i think a big thing is like recognizing if you've gotten to that point and having people who can can help you kind of reorient yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, something I haven't really been able to kind of work through this in my head right now, because I think, Gal, this is kind of right, that it takes, it does take rest, it takes processing to then be able to kind of go out and try to, like, intervene, to try to, like, make the world better, because, like, life is exhausting, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. But, like, mm-hmm. it is interesting, like, yeah, this is, like, a moment where we're seeing more more actions, more people willing to put themselves out there politically, try to change, like try, you know, it's still a small chunk of the American population that's actually like showing up for racial justice, but some people are more than have for, you know, at least in the last decade or something. And it's happening during this moment of like national exhaustion, anxiety, and depression. Like the connection between like the fact that like all this is happening during COVID is kind of shocking in a weird way. Cause like, I know I wake up every, every, like life is just a gray sludge now. And, but like, you know, like, and I think that's true for a lot of folks. Like the more I, you know, as I talk to people, like a lot of people are really deeply depressed and deeply sad and deeply beaten down, but still people are going out there and doing it. That's just like, it's heroic, but it's also like, shoot, how do you, how do you manage to rally that? You know, every day, like the folks, you know, folks on the streets in Portland, like shoot, they're getting up every day and fighting for it. Yeah. And also, is it like a little bit different, you know, for the is the motivation, is the experience kind of different for like the folks that are showing up as like part of like a Black Lives Matter or Antifa like, uh, you know, action uh, versus like, you know, the folks that are Proud Boys? Like, are they showing up and are they are they finding more joy on the streets than the other activists or how does all that all kind of work? Right. I think sometimes there I feel like there are three groups there. I feel like sometimes there are like the actual marginalized communities that are doing it because we have to, but we would really like to enjoy the calmness and freedoms that everyone else has been enjoying this whole time until this moment. Then there are like your proud boy people who are feel like they're actually protecting something and that they're, you know, an extension of the military to help the state. But then there's another group that it's like it's fun for them. Like they're on the they're often saying Black Lives Matter and trying to do ha- helpful things, but this allyship that seems like it's, like, funny and fun for them. It's, like, an activity now. Like, oh, we're going to go do this and da-da-da. Like, it's almost mocking. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to 
Are they the Hawaiian t-shirt wearing crowd? Or no, I'm saying like even on the like left side, like helpful, type. like, yeah, like your helpful ally. It yeah. feels a little, yeah, a little performative. Like, oh yeah, we're going to go out on the street and do this. We're going to go out on the street and do that. And it's like, that's great. We're all going out on the street for things. But like, I need to make sure that these are necessary and um object driven actions mm-hmm. it's not fun every single day People to go out trying to start right yeah, when you're not directly impacted it feels like altruism and oh wow am i doing a good thing am i gonna get a medal you know yeah <laughs> when when you're the person like uh my research peer and i talk about being autoethnographers of violence when when you're confronted with the raw semi uh, anti-Semitism and the raw misogyny and just the supreme hatred of what people think you are, um, that that is not fun. Uh, right. And, and having to humanize yourself, a lot of the work uh, that I do involves prolonged contact as a counter-stereotypical individual. Yeah. And that over time reduces prejudice. My uh, my roommate Doggo is getting ready for her walk, so if you hear, okay. hi Doggo, we love you. We love dogs. We love dogs here. Yeah. You're listening to KWNK LP ninety seven point seven FM, Reno, Nevada. But but yeah, it it does take a toll, <laughs> and um, you the. When when people really become allies, they become better at sitting with the discomfort without being paralyzed by indecision. Like what we talked about the other day about the integrative complexity um, training that we were doing of uh, select readings, pre, pre-test the reading and then post-test to see if more nuance, you know, cognitive complexity expanded. And as uh, the more people learn and the scores increase, people seem more hesitant to do something um, so that the performance is easier because people model what that looks like, right? Nobody yeah. wants to be perceived as a bad person, but there are moments where you have to sit with like, was that tone deaf? Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> She's really going at it. Um, was that tone <laughs> we deaf? can't hear it as uh, well if that helps. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> oh, Bobby. <laughs> anyway, um, so... So there is sitting with the discomfort of not knowing everything and also not needing to dominate the space, like giving up space to people. And you're not, you know, you're allowing them into the space, right? You're giving them access. And that's harder to do than performing solidarity. Yes. I know Lily and I have talked about uh, when the George Floyd protests and riots started, we had a lot of uh, white friends of ours reach out to both of us and were like, what are some books we could read? And like asking us for recommendations. Everyone failed that class. Yeah, it was just like, that was to the extent, it was very performative. It was like asking what books to read, but we never like heard we are them awaiting your report yeah like we never heard them say like i read this book never got back to us they never posted anything saying like this book was so good i was recommended it by you know lily and kaylee or we even offered to like i have some of these books What's you don't have love? to buy them you could borrow them I just never replied after that you know so it's just they want to seem like you know they were doing the, the good thing but 
you know, didn't actually do the good thing. Like you would know if they did the good thing because they would even performatively tell you about the good thing they did. So oh, you yeah. know you didn't read it. You can, if you can drop that citation into a conversation, like you'd be like, oh, awesome. in the yeah. book I read, the new Jim Crow, they said this. Like also, I know you would have said something. I'll send send these people to my classes next, yeah. and I'll uh, I'll be sure to be grading. <laughs> I'll grade them hard so that way you know we'll we'll know that they're taking something home. I'll pass their essays along to you, and you can you can do the grading on them. But <laughs> I know some of my friends. And um, went so far as to start just reading books on their social media, just being like, all right, fine, guys. Yeah. Like, if it needs to be a part of your scrolling, shout out to Angelo Monroy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, just being like, okay, well, I guess I'll just dedicate this amount of my time every week to reading this to you. And I have contemplated it a few times myself because I'm like, people are really just not going to do this. Yeah. They want to get back to normal. Um, So, like, at what point for an ally does self-care start and the work end? You know, like, what I mean, if you're tired, imagine how tired we are. Yeah, that's what I think about you a lot. (laughs) Exactly. I have a friend in Vegas. uh, he's, He's in law school right now. And we had a conversation because we have a mutual friend in our community who went to Oakland uh, for something related to her profession and didn't have the best time. Um, She's a white woman and um, she felt like she was treated poorly and being uh, discriminated against. It was during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. And, uh, you know, we had a moment where, you know, he's talking about how she called him to say that she was having a bad time and she felt really uncomfortable during the Black Lives Matter (laughs) protest. And we looked at each other like, you're having a bad time? You're having, oh, is America not fun right now? What's that like? I wish I was at Uh, So we kind of started jokingly referring to her as the Black Lives Matter activist in the conversation. (laughs) But that's true. Like, I have had some people call... A couple of times, actually, this has happened. Somebody calls me like, hey, I just wanted to see how you're doing because I am not doing well. Let mm-hmm. me tell you, with COVID, and I'm a waitress, and this is hard, and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, two hours later, I'm like, were you calling me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> For One support? thing that people can do to be better allies is say, are you emotionally available to talk right Yes. Now? That is one of my things with friends, too. That's mm -hmm. the best part with friends when they're like, hey, I need to vent. Is that okay? Your friends aren't your therapist. Right. Get a therapist, y'all. Especially, like, taking the And everybody needs to. I mean, if anyone's living their absolute best life right now, they're lying. Uh, It's not the greatest. Like, we have a global pandemic. Unless you're Jeff uh, Recession. uh, Race riots in every city. Uh, and we're cruising into an election. Um, it's really important to acknowledge that it's okay to not be okay, and also to n- not burden your friends with things that are reserved for a skilled and qualified therapist. It's one thing to vent about your day, which can be cathartic, especially among your most trusted friends. But it's another thing if there's like if this COVID has stirred up some really deep-seated issues in you or new trauma 
um, that you might need like some someone who has professional tools to help. So I think there's something about normalizing uh, the seeking of help and right. normalizing the fact that it's not okay. I think there was a term that was thrown out called surge capacity that we're at our, our surge capacity. Like we can go for short periods of time uh, with like the high adrenaline and not knowing what's going on and, you know, facing that. But this is like prolonged, like being, you know, what's happening, what's going on, what are we doing? And it's hitting everybody at different times. Um, so maybe there's something about normalizing it's okay to not be okay, but it's also really important to not just check on your friends, but say, are you emotionally available to have this conversation right now? Right. And like some people are kind of just now experiencing oppression for the first time. Like there have been people, friends that are like, oh yeah, I went to the store today and everybody was treating me weird and I have no idea why. And I was just like having my day and, and people were rude. And then I realized it's because I was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt or whatever. And so they're like, just, you know, getting that. And I'm like, that's a cool, but you can take the shirt off still, you know? So like mm -hmm. now that's, you've experienced some fraction of oppression or like, you know, you're losing your job for a reason that has nothing to do with you for the first time or you're having to stand up for yourself in a job. Like I know at, at my school, there are some teachers who are like, I'm uncomfortable with X, Y, and Z, but I'm afraid to stand up for myself. And I'm like, right. Welcome to my entire existence. Yeah. People are mistaking <laughs> inconvenience for oppression. Yes. What about, so like where, where can we draw the comparison between like, that and a, like our proud boys and the the far right people are those do they feel as if they're experiencing oppression yes it is through the the lens of the red pill that they can frame themselves as the victims of virtually any situation they encounter um, I was talking to the, the chairman of the Proud Boys last night for the first time through Zoom, uh, you know, and I, you know, I they have a real chairman. We joke about having one, but they like really have one. Yeah, they have a chairman. They have degrees. They have violence. They're organized. Those degrees. They're, they're organized. Um, but, you know, I keep reemphasizing with him and others that I talk to, you know, Liberty in the, you know, like libertarian sense of freedom, it doesn't mean freedom from personal responsibility. There yes. is something very gratifying about um, refusing to take ownership of a problem uh, and in, in the beginning, but for, for a lot of these proud boys, but some people get stuck in just, it's okay to do whatever I want without limitations. Um, and that's imposing your will on others. And uh, it's not seen that way. Um, if you if you check out the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs uh, article, Take the Red Pill, that was published on Labor Day, it will really drill down into the ideology that makes them see themselves that way. And there's a very specific incident that drives that point home. Um, but ultimately they see the consequences of their actions as something that's oppressing them. 
um, the chairman of the Proud Boys had his web domain. Uh, I think they were holding on to his URL or something like that after they said he violated terms of service. Uh, and they, you know, they took down some of his websites. Um, and there's really not a lot of consideration of like why a company would do that. So it's like, it's not just a company enforcing their terms of service. It's they want to censor us. They can't handle the truth. Right. You know, they're affecting my business. And, and there's very little consideration of, of why companies would make that decision, you know? So then when we talk about like, that's a, the Liberty thing I want to play on because when we talk about executing a citizen, they have now, um, they now have, do not have um, two amendment rights, right? They're not, they're not getting a trial. They're not innocent until proven guilty. Why are Proud Boys who are, are, or even libertarians who are all about the Constitution, why are they not super, super upset about police violence? I don't, I feel like they're on the wrong side. <laughs> I, I would say you're probably right about that. But like, yeah, I mean, I do remember there's a, there's an interview with Richard Spencer, yeah. uh, you know, where uh, he was being asked, like, OK, tell me about some experiences of oppression that you've gone through in your life that make you feel like you need to sort of, you know, protect white lives. And his example was having to wait too long for coffee at a McDonald's because he thought that they were like uh, they were holding, you know, holding it back on him because it was, you know. Uh, you know, non-white people behind the counter and they saw him as white. And so they made him wait five minutes for his coffee. There's this like real. You gonna wait. <laughs> and it's a, yeah, he, it's, he was a victim of racial violence that day. Now, um, but that's like, you know, Aww, but this is. Spancy. I know, poor, yeah, you know, anybody who needs a catharsis, yeah, the catharsis of watching him get uh, get punched while explaining the Pepe frog, that's, uh, that's worth looking up on YouTube. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's this. You know, with the Proud Boys and with Richard Spencer, there's this like real strong sense of like entitlement or something. This kind of idea, that, you know, they're defending Western civilization. When they're defending Western civilization, they're really defending white supremacy. But they don't really see it as white supremacy because they, I think, they can frame it as like Western civilization is culturally neutral or something like that. Like when the, it the is we white supremacy, yeah, like, that but, is exactly what Western civilization is. Yeah, and so, but you know, I think you know, Western civilization, it is like, yeah, they don't have this sort of sense that like. You know, the the their Western civilization is not the Constitution, right? Like that, like right. the, the principle of like freedom of speech ought to they ought to be entitled to that sort of use of whatever spaces in whatever way they see fit, like kind of regard like across public private lines. You know, that there's like a, a sense that like, yeah, the Constitution, you know, the Constitution is an expression of something to them, I guess. But it does uh, like, you know, it doesn't quite go far enough in defending the white privilege that they feel like they ought to have or like the sort of Western privilege that they feel like they ought to have. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know really exactly what to do with that. But like, it does feel like yeah, the sort of really, really strong sense yeah. of entitlement. You like know? <laughs> when I hear liberty, I'm like, oh, that means you like the Constitution. So you definitely know that it is not OK to kill someone without a trial. Right. And then mm -hmm. it's like, no, <laughs> not that part of the Constitution. Or if they like, just listen to the cop, you know. Right. <laughs> or like, but what about. According to his patriot. <laughs> yeah. What about when we use slave labor um, as a in the Constitution? They committed like, a crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is that okay? <laughs> um, it is very interesting, though. So, like, at some point, do you think that there will be. 
be an understanding there? Like, at when are these people going to realize that it's the state, unless they are literally the state, they're on the wrong side. Like, they will also be victims of the state eventually. I've told the leader of the uh, the current chairman of the Proud Boys, um, who is Afro-Cuban, uh, in private. Uh, Wait, you know, when what? The Hold on, there's COVID. brains everywhere in this studio right now. It was like, pow, pow, pow. hold on, rewind. <laughs> One more time for the people in the back. I'm sure I didn't hear that clearly. <laughs> so this is why this is why I felt it was important to write the article for Georgetown University, right? Yeah. The uh, the chairman of the Proud Boys is Afro-Cuban. There are many Latinos for I... Trump uh, yeah. and who are part of the, the that, Proud Boys yeah. community. And uh, so in in America, uh, when when Proud Boys say that they are um, when they're identifying with the West and Western culture. Like, what does that mean for an Afro-Cuban person or a Hispanic person or someone like Tiny, who is Samoan, to um, to identify with the West? Because there's no, that is whiteness, but there's no unifying uh, culture of whiteness. So when you really drill down into it, what they are identifying with is culturally normative psychopathy and aggrieved male entitlement. Culturally normative psychopathy is a term coined by my friend, a neuroscientist who studies uh, is a genocide scholar named uh, Kate Shaw. And um, that framework, you really view things through the lens of like, why so much careless indifference to, to black lives? Like why such a violent reaction to just making the statement that they matter? Right. Why can Colin Kaepernick be called a traitor for <laughs> peacefully protesting and calling attention to injustice while a 17 year old in telegram and other channels can be lauded as a hero for shooting two people. Right. Um, yeah. And so that is like, it is very intersectional. Like when we look at, we, we really peel apart all of the, everything is intersectional. It's not just black people saying black lives matter and it's not just, white people that are proud boys, but I did not know that the chairman was Afro-Latina. I'm going to have to sit with that for a moment. I know, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it a- takes a minute. Yeah. And, and that's the one thing that, like, the concept of people like Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro being Candace. ideological shields, you know, uh, they get to say, like, you know, Charlie Kirk and others get to say, how can we be racist when we have these people in our organization? Right. And I try to say you can be bigoted regardless of race, class, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. There's just something about the generalized hate that appeals to many people who feel humiliated in their personal lives. And and you uh, do a lot of tying it to trauma. And um, one thing I will say about Candace Owens is that other than her need for moisturizer is um, – I don't like you, Karen, Candace. Um, Karen. Karen, Candace, yes, the black Karen. Uh, is that, you know, she – her original thing, I feel like every time she's mentioned, we have to mention – 
that originally she won a lawsuit with the help of the NAACP for discrimination. So she's built her entire um, life definitely, you know, by, by some by an organization that is completely opposing to what she says now. Um, and I think it's very important. But that is was a source of trauma. She was um, othered by a white classmate and sued them in, um, with the help of the NAACP. So she does still have that trauma. And I know that there is a, a big link to, like, accelerationist and trauma and um, on both sides, on every side, you know. Mm-hmm. For, um, that's where the danger comes in. Can you speak a little bit to, like, that mental health, that where where mental health comes into play. Yeah, um, I was having the my Twitter is a really cursed space right now. <laughs> my researcher would call it, but um, I was talking to a black proud boy, and he responded to an article on the like from the Root, and um, he said, "I really fear what's happening to our country. I don't know where it ends." And he said something along the lines of, um, uh, "I was like asking me to call attention to injustice." And I responded with like, okay, I see what you're saying, but in some cases, you know, people choose to identify with their abuser because they feel it will either offer them some form of protection because it's easier, because they feel like they're getting one up on someone because they're not offended. But these are like soul-crushing activities. So I can only imagine what a figure like Candace Owens does to cope with the reality of I don't know. I mean, holding that position, you know. I wonder too, because it's just like you are. She is not, not the black woman's hero right now. And Mm -hmm. her her recent discourse with Cardi B, I thought was so interesting for on so many levels. Like on a on an educational um, disparity. I don't know. Just the way that she lorded over her classism. You know, it was just like Candace Owens. You know, was um, brought up in this elitist space, whereas mm-hmm. Cardi B, yes, now now she is also like maybe in the same wealth class, but was not brought up in that elitist space in the way that Candace Owens tried to use um, her education to silence Cardi B was very interesting also like it became a class thing which is which is exciting because the sooner we can get there the better yeah yeah (laughs) it's it's ultimately a class war that's happening but somehow uh people have been conditioned to betray their own interests by voting for policies that harm them in the long run by restricting their access to things that could give them an opportunity to advance Uh, i would love to hear more or check out the conversation with Cardi B and Candace Owens. I know she went after uh, Melania Trump recently, yes. which yes. was hilarious. That was so funny. Yeah, it was very interesting. They really went, they really, um, they really went at it. And it was just, you could see all of these fabrics just like um, tearing and ripping apart. And I was like, this is so important. Like this, mm-hmm. this should be studied. Yeah, Candace Owens called Cardi B illiterate was what, like, the big thing takeaway. And she said Cardi B was pandering when she had a, a spoke with Joe Biden 
not like Trump ever panders, though. You right. Know, just... <laughs> yeah, she, she did. She said that mm-hmm. they were, she's like, Bernie used you and Joe Biden used you. And like, there is, I mean, there's truth in that. But she said, um, they think you're dumb. Mm-hmm. And Cardi B is like, well, people think you're dumb, too. Yeah. Girl, like, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, Candace Owens was trying to say that by the Democratic Party using Cardi B, the, they're assuming that black people are dumb because they're using someone who is dumb to uh, push the Democratic Party platform. I didn't mean to cut off. But like, um, yeah, I mean, it's this is a terrible parallel to sketch, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, Like, so I I, I, like thinking back to like, this is kind of Candace Owens' line almost seems like a weird, like a shadow realm version of like some stuff that Malcolm X was saying in the sixties, like the ballot or the bullet, but like, you know, black voters are being manipulated by the democratic party. Um, she just sort of did. voting against their, voting she against- did post a Malcolm X quote. And I feel uh, like Mac- Malcolm X would slap her, but mm-hmm. she definitely did. Um, a lot of people on that side like mm-hmm. to use Malcolm X and, um, there's still, you know, I have to always mention, too, when we talk about hate groups, like, there are registered black hate groups, and that's how mm-hmm. we lost Fred Hampton and Stokely Carmichael and, 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 mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I mean, Candace Owens always says uh, black people aren't a monolith, and so we shouldn't just blindly follow the Democratic Party, and that's why she pushes so hard for Republican Party. It's not just the Proud Boys. It's black Trump supporters. It's a huge thing on that, like black Republicans. Why do they vote um, for the Republican Party? Why do they vote for Trump? It's it's usually because of that, I hear. It's just like, you know. And I think Mm -hmm. she's absolutely right and that we shouldn't all go for the Democratic Party and that we should absolutely have a different party. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We should all have a people's party at this point. Like, I absolutely loathe and detest having to register a Democrat. And I procrastinate it for as long as possible Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, and then I go and unregister every time and then re (laughs) you know, and then caucus as independent and then I have to register again. And like when they tell me you have to. So where, you know, where I will agree with Candace Owens, oh, I can't believe I just said that, is that, you know, is that we absolutely black people and brown people are being used by both parties to push agendas that do not serve any of us, but they don't serve anyone with under a billion dollars. Yeah, there is a false sense of agency that comes from being um, counterculture. It's kind of the, you know, don't tell me what to do or how to think. I'm going to do this because I want to, right? right? And then there's all these people who have invested tons of money in the AstroTurf campaigns, like um, like Turning Point USA. To be like, yeah, socialism sucks. Join our side. And then, like, his funders are like, oh, good, we have a few more. Right. Well, yeah, I guess the, this whole conversation <laughs> makes me think. So going back to what was the, the term psychopathy that you were using before the like uh, mm-hmm. culturally normative psychopathy by one. Kate yeah. Shaw. It is. But it's like almost like is is this behavior psychopathic now? Because like, I mean, we've talked about how many ways like the world is awful. Electoral politics is terrible. Like it's almost like what was it? Anyway, this is like overplayed quote, like, you know. 
like true insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting yeah. a different results. And like maybe, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's the moderates that are the psychopaths in this case. And like the Proud Boys are actually, I hate to, I, this is, you know, as bad as like agreeing with Candace Owens, but like maybe the Proud Boys are the same ones relative to at least like a moderate Democrat. Like, it's easier <laughs> to is, talk to a libertarian than a moder than any liberal. For yeah. me, at least, like I mind the majority of like Facebook arguments I'm having right now are with like Black Lives Matter saying neoliberal Democrats. Like, and they, it's so hard for them if you're just like, yeah, but this, you know, I still am uncomfortable that Joe Biden's also a racist and, you know, the crime bill and Kamala's not my fave either. And they just like can't take it and take it to the level of like, well, you have to vote. I'm like, didn't say I wasn't voting, just saying like, mm -hmm. these people are problematic and they don't care about any of us. And it's okay for us to say something about it. <laughs> It's okay to uh, critique. Yeah, and I, I asked, um, back in 2016, I asked some of the Bernie or Bust people, like, is this worth a Trump presidency, right? Because, like, yeah, these are, ter like, these are not people you would necessarily idolize. Right. But, like, does it justify it? I really do think we have a false choice because of the way that, oh, wait, I can't say the word. We really uh, messed over... <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, Daddy and, Bernie. You know, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's sad because consistently, I mean, there's black and white photos of him get arrested alongside people. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. he is consistent. Yes, he uh, was the one. I, yeah. And to me, you know, I think, because I was definitely, um, I wouldn't say Bernie or bust, but I, uh, I had a child that I, I have a kid that I bring into the, um, voting booth with me every time we vote because so I just want it to be like a routine exercise for him and I had him oh, people are going to be so mad at me for this I had him choose because he caucused with me and he's actually like super um, well versed in, his, in history and political theory and he did write in Bernie he chose to write in Bernie so yes I am <laughs> it is my fault um, but I have recently been reflecting that, like, yes, we did not vote for whoever. Sorry. I don't really like vote shaming, to be honest. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the cancel culture thing, too. Yeah, it all, exactly. Yeah. I, I yeah. Mean, you and should... then you're like, wait a minute. Like, you know, you can't be, like, sniffing people's hair and stuff. That's kind of creepy. Can we at least yeah. acknowledge that's kind of creepy? <laughs> like, how dare you? He's yeah. going to defeat Trump. Please, yeah. you know, stop talking. It's like, wow, you can't even, like saying things that are like at least a bit odd. I, I think it's ironic because it's like those people are like, get out and vote. Voting's so important important until you vote the way they don't yeah. want you to. <laughs> the, then it's and like, then wait it's, a second. You know, you're <laughs> the reason why <laughs> Trump's getting elected. But um, I like it. I like it. And <laughs> I, I have, I'm going to stand by the fact that 90% of the people I know that are now engaged in social justice issues would not be engaged if Hillary Clinton were the president, just like they weren't engaged when Obama was the president, because they could put themselves to bed with their warm cup of identitarian politics and not care about anything. And I'm just like, you know, guys, I'm really glad it accelerated what needs to occur, which is us recognizing that this this nation and capitalism is crumbling. It does not serve any of us anymore. And I think that four more years of the person that you like the way they look sitting in office would have just been more marginalized communities screaming underwater 
while everyone else mm-hmm. is like, well, you had, I mean, and quote, I've had this said to me, you have a black president. What more do you want? You know, like I was not oh. allowed to be mad when we had Obama and I was mm-hmm. not allowed, like I'm not allowed to be mad if it was Hillary. But when it's Trump, suddenly people are like, you are being treated in, you know, incorrectly. I'm like, Black Lives Matter happened before and none of y'all cared. Mm-hmm. It's only now that Trump is in office and you have skin in the game that you care and that you're aware of these things. Like nobody cared about the Tulsa massacre when Mike Brown died and that information was still there. Mm-hmm. Nobody cared. To, nobody asked me about any books when yeah. Trayvon died. Nobody asked me about anything when Sandra Bland or mm-hmm. Ayanna Stanley Jones or Anaya Stanley Jones or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It took mm-hmm. Trump and George Floyd, not just George mm-hmm. Floyd. Um, One of the sweetest memories, like, I had um, on two very sad days um, was after the synagogue shooting, my friend from Saudi Arabia reached out to me and asked me if I was okay. And um, nobody had called and reached out to me uh-huh. uh, like that. Right. And uh, it was so heartwarming because those, those can be really intensely alienating experiences yeah. where you're just like, they really, they really want us dead, you know? Right. And then when the Christchurch shooting happened, I called my friend who was staying from Egypt. I called my Saudi Arabian friend. I called all of my Muslim friends. And I said, I can't imagine what you're going through, but I'm here for you if you need anybody. And they said, thank you. Nobody, not my teachers, not my, um, not my other students. Like nobody has reached out to just say, I see you. And I know this is painful and I'm here if you need. Right. Yeah. And that's, I would say that that's the same now. Like that's nobody cared about my blackness until literally this president, all of my friends, unless they were already activists or anything like that. No one ever cared. I was always overreacting. And now all of a sudden everyone wants to listen. So I am glad that, that I feel like that is the silver lining for this president, that it's forcing people to realize how they participated in creating this monster. And like things like Washoe County School District saying that we can't talk about these things are creating a lot of little monsters. Like we're going to continue propping up these, you know, don't talk about religion and politics, don't talk about this or even saying that race relations or slavery is politics or, you know, any of that, like avoiding those is just making more little, little Trumps. Silence is siding with the side of the Mm -hmm. oppressor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we've really, (laughs) we've really uncovered a lot here. Um, And I've really appreciated having all of you in these, in this discussion. Yeah. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you, Colm. Um, and so before we close out, we do want to mention on Saturday, we have an event that Reno Copwatch and Impacted Families are hosting. And this is the only event of of this year that has been hosted by directly impacted families of police violence. So I really, really want to see all of us show up for them and support. And that's going to be at 1230 at the federal courthouse um, on Saturday again, and then there will be a march to an undisclosed location and a reception for families at Sierra Arts Foundation. If you want to um, 
help in any way or participate, you can just show up or you can uh, DM Reno Copwatch or me if you want to, Lily Barron on Facebook. Um, And then, Samantha, do you want to go ahead and tell us where we can find you, too, on the interwebs? Uh, Sure. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Ashkenaz89. That's A-S-H-K-E-N-A-Z-8-9. And I just uh, published my website, ProudBoysWhisperer.com, which describes my background, my work, the outreach I do, the uh, the forever homework I do, (laughs) and uh, why I created Glitter Pill and how you can support and join. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And Colm, how do we find you? Uh, I have zero social media presence. I, I curate. What? How are we going to stalk you after? Uh, you can email me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> write, me a, write me a letter. Send it to me on an old-timey derivative. Tell the post. Uh, Callum is going to support the post office single-handedly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep teaching classes up at uh, up at UNR. And uh, I hopefully I'll have a book coming out in about six months or so. Maybe I'll... Uh, Try cool. to come back on here and sell some copies. It's going to yeah. be on an academic press and cost a ton of money that I will not be able to afford my own books. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'll pirate PDFs oh. for anybody who wants <laughs> it, though. We'll just take pictures of it. Um, and then, Kaylee, do you want to give any of your handles or anything? <laughs> I don't know. I have uh, Kaylee Barnett on Facebook or at Kaylee underscore Devin on Instagram. I think awesome. no, or uh, Twitter. We're <laughs> always okay, Kaylee and I haven't <laughs> had a regular Instagram for a very yeah. long time. We're always posting yeah. depressing That's things, Twitter. but sometimes I'll post about like a dog or my garden, and then it'll go like straight yeah. back to oppression. Um, <laughs> I'm fine art in life at uh, on Instagram. <laughs> we listen to at the top of the hour. This is America by Childish Gan- Gambino, and then on the break, Trapped in the American Dream with Terry Lynn Carrington, and we are going to close out with a new one from Anderson Pack um, with Rick Ross. Cut him in. We are Mass Liberation Radio, and we are so happy to have been joined by everyone. Have a wonderful day. Sometimes you need a friend, not the ones that just show up and don't put nothing in. You know the ones that lend their hand and want to see you win. When you come up on that lick, make sure you cut them in. And then-